Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. So we have the seasonal flu, and we have COVID, and we have the flu shots, and we have the COVID vaccinations, and the COVID boosters. So there's a very interesting article in The Atlantic magazine uh, from just three days ago. And the title of it is, COVID Science is Moving Backwards. And it got me thinking about whether infectious diseases physicians are taking a uniform view and approach to dealing with COVID, with vaccinations and boosters. And according to this article, not really. There are many different points of view from brilliant physicians with a great history of success. Dr. Neil Rao is a brilliant physician with a great history of success, infectious diseases specialist in Halton Region in Ontario, assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, and he is back with us on the program. Dr. Rao, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. Now, there's COVID and there's the annual flu. Are infectious diseases specialists conflicted on how to approach each as in to vaccinate or not vaccinate, to issue booster shots or not issue booster shots. Is there conflicting opinion within the infectious diseases community? Uh, Firstly, thanks for the kind comments in the intro. Um, Conflicting opinions, I think, are partly concerns about conflicting messaging and confusing messaging. And I can see why the general populace is confused now, because even with COVID messaging, it's been awfully confusing. So it's hard for people to say, well, listen, Get this vaccine, but not that one. Or if it's you're if you're a member of some sort of population group, don't get it. People just want a simple public health message: just go get the vaccine. Every vaccine. I think that's a misguided strategy to sort of just say something for everyone all the time. It's it's simple, but it's not logical. That piece in the Atlantic you were discussing, specifically referring to COVID nineteen and the changing landscape we have now with a population in North America especially in Canada, that has seen the virus, the actual virus, let alone the vaccine, coupled with the fact that almost everybody has had two doses of vaccine. We're talking about over 90% of people over age 12 having had it, the vaccine, and at least 80% of people have had the disease itself. So when you put those two things together, it's not 2020. The population is no longer naive relative to the virus from an immune system perspective. And so whatever happens with COVID, even if we get a new Greek alphabet letter in a pie instead of Omicron, a new variant, we're not going to have big swells and surges in the healthcare system that we saw earlier. Do we know, or more accurately, do you know the infectious diseases physicians community? Do you know conclusively what strain of COVID you're treating right now, you're dealing with right now? We know what we're dealing with now, but I think the uncertainty is the future. So we know that we have a sub-variant of Omicron. Omicron has had a long run now since December 2021, but Omicron is so good at reinventing itself that even if you had Omicron in, say, January 2022, you might be vulnerable to a new strain of Omicron that's circulating now, whatever you know number or digit we give it. The thing is, being vulnerable to infection is not the same as being vulnerable to ending up in an intensive care unit or dying. So there's only a small subgroup of people 
who with reinfection, with waning or falling immunity over time from either infection or vaccination, who can end up with a bad consequence. And those are the people we should really be targeting for booster vaccinations now. What I see as a misguided strategy now is that we have simple messaging telling everyone to get a booster or for everyone to get the next iteration of the COVID-19 vaccine, the new Omicron-derived variant version. Uh, I don't think everyone needs it. And I don't think it's going to change the trajectory of the outbreak. It's not going to affect whether transmission stops. We know that now. But it will protect some people if the right people get it. The other thing we're doing is we're really pushing this hard on kids and on, on young adults. I I think, again, that population is not at big risk of that outcome. Yes, you're going to hear about long COVID, but at least from the perspective of ending up in an ICU or dying, that population is a low risk. I think it's appropriate to take stock. Now, if I were sitting in Beijing right now, I'd be speaking a different tune because that population has not had widespread disease, and there's uncertainty as to how many people have received a vaccine in the high-risk groups. So the Canadian Pediatric Society is urging parents to have their children, six months of age and older, vaccinated against the flu. I'm not sure whether they're uh, advising vaccinating against COVID as well uh, or just the annual flu. You would know better than I. What do you say to that? So switching gears, different virus, the flu, as you said. So flu can be a serious problem in children, no question. This is different from COVID and it can actually be deadly. I think it's the kids under two I'm most worried about rather than every child. So, again, the strategy should be focused because if you offer the vaccine to every child, you kind of get a run on the bank and the wrong kid gets the vaccine versus the one who's more likely to benefit. There are kids with underlying neurological and health problems. There aren't many, but there are some that are seen in in, in tertiary care pediatric hospitals. Those kids are top priority to get the, the, the vaccine. And also, we do have an antiviral medication, uh, Tamiflu, that can be given to children as well in the right circumstance, coupled with a positive test. So we're not treating just any respiratory virus, but specifically treating the flu. So there are strategies. I don't think I would exhort every child to get it. Uh, some experts have called for every child to get it because it will stop the swell of the wave in kids. I don't think it will because I think it's too late to be deploying vaccination as a strategy to stop transmission when it comes to the flu. Unfortunately, the flu vaccine, just like the COVID-19 vaccine, does not stop transmission. To use my tired analogy, it's an airbag, not a collision prevention system. So it will protect the most vulnerable. If parents want to vaccinate their kids, by all means do it. But I think if you're looking at where going, going fishing with the fish are, you really should focus on those kids under age two. And especially if they're in daycare, they're more likely to see the virus as well. Okay. You mentioned Tamiflu. Now, I haven't heard that word since 2007 when people were hoarding the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's in the arsenal as well. I mean, the problem with that drug is it has to be given within a short duration of the onset of symptoms to even shorten the duration of the illness. And in terms of the harder endpoint of keeping kids out of hospital, if you're dealing with young kids, Obviously, the younger the child, there may be more benefits, but the, the evidence for it working isn't so good. We had this kind of debate with a lot of those antivirals for COVID as well, like who should really get it, and do unvaccinated people from COVID benefit the same way from Paxlovid as those who are vaccinated? There's all, the same kind of debate comes up once you have a, uh, some immune protection. But what we are seeing with influenza this year is a population of kids who have not been exposed 
due to social dis- physical distancing and, and, and lockdowns and no schooling and so on. So you, you have a population that has become somewhat immune, naive to the flu, and that's why it is a bit of a bumper year. Um, we're seeing an earlier rise of the outbreak this year than usual. Usually it would be picking up starting in mid-October, late October. This year it started in September, the pickup. And it actually has likely peaked even Canada-wide in the last week. doesn't mean we're, we're out of the woods, but it's, once you reach the peak of an outbreak, using the vaccine to stop transmission is a misguided strategy because you reach the peak because a lot of people have seen the virus already. Dr. Rao, we have a healthcare system which is chaotic at best. People are struggling, not getting the treatments they require. Maybe you know, the services are just very, very difficult to obtain. What is the message that you then send at a time like that? Five million people have no family doctor. What's the responsible get vaccinated message that people should receive? Well, the message for vaccination needs to be responsible. I think there's a disconnect between flu vaccine and what's going on with the healthcare system in the sense that the healthcare system is a problem year-round, not just during flu season. Mm-hmm. The flu waves last a total of 12 to 16 weeks. They go up and they go down after 12 or 16 weeks. So it's a year-round problem, not just a flu problem or an RSV problem or a COVID problem. However, I think when it comes to the vaccine, the message that needs to be given now needs to be more focused on getting the right people vaccinated rather than wasting resources in terms of buying vaccine for anyone and everyone, and also wasting resources in terms of giving vaccine to anyone and everyone just because it's a good thing to do. Uh, We need to look at what the impact of an intervention is in terms of reducing impact on the healthcare system and preventing death and and, and morbidity and mortality. So uh, I think what we have to stop doing is just universalizing things because they sound like you're doing something. We need to be more focused and strategic. And we also have to look at solving a lot of the other problems in healthcare that have nothing to do with the viruses, improving our uh, digital health records and digital health transformation in, in the healthcare system. So we're not duplicating and repeating tests. Uh, and other issues like uh, making sure that people leave hospitals for long-term care or alternative forms of care so we can decant and create more hospital capacity. Again, nothing to do with the virus, just a general problem we've had for years. We're always running over capacity in hospitals, even independent of COVID. There was never a good time in the healthcare system that I can remember. What is your uh, assessment of what's going on in children's hospitals? Overcrowded, kids are being transferred from hospital to hospital. There's talk about um, sending children, some Canadian children, to the United States by helicopter. That story was from Ontario yesterday. How do you assess what's going on in the kids' hospitals? So the kids' hospitals are a bit unique. Usually kids' hospitals are not overloaded, but respiratory virus surges can do it. So when it comes to the kids' hospitals, for sure we are seeing the impact of the virus. But I can say this. It's not going to last forever. They had, they were hit hard with RSV due to immune debt. People, a kids not having seen the virus uh, or their moms having not seen the virus. So you have a sort of an immunity gap created by COVID. And now the same sort of thing with influenza. In that case, it's a bit of a different discussion. They definitely need surge capacity planning. Other hospitals that are not, children's hospitals have to pony up and take kids longer or older than they, or younger than they usually would take in an intensive care unit, for example. So you might have a 14-year-old in an intensive care unit in an adult hospital, like where I work, rather than being sent to a, a, a pediatric hospital. So 
there's some sort of capacity building that has to happen. Again, I don't think it's going to last more than a few weeks. So how is the success of a vaccine measured, whether it's the seasonal flu or whether it's COVID? Um, on the surface, that sounds like a ridiculous question, but, but I'm asking if COVID is outpacing our progress in dealing with the virus, ditto the annual flu, but to a lesser extent. So the most successful vaccine I can name right off the bat is the measles vaccine or the childhood vaccines we give. Those like polio, uh, mumps, rubella, uh, diphtheria, those are the most successful vaccines because they stop the transmission of the virus for the most part. They give sterilizing immunity. Once you're dealing with the flu vaccine, the flu vaccine is preventing dangerous outcomes, especially in people at risk. So kids under age two are going to benefit more than a child who's 12 uh, or a child who's 18 years old. When it comes to the COVID vaccine, it too transiently stops transmission, but not very well. And even the latest iteration of that vaccine, it doesn't do much more benefit than the original Wuhan strain vaccine that we were giving everybody, the COVID classic vaccine, um, from the perspective of stopping infection. From the perspective of preventing bad outcomes, a small subgroup of people will benefit even from the booster and the new derived booster, be they 80 years old uh, or with an organ transplant or dialysis patients. But I think, unfortunately, when it comes to the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine, we have to manage our expectations. And once you have a vaccine that doesn't stop transmission, the reason why you're getting the vaccine has to be considered carefully at a public policy level. In other words, just universalizing it, giving it to everyone doesn't work. We started doing this with the COVID vaccine because we thought it was stopping transmission and because we thought that everybody was at risk of a perilous outcome, even though the risk was lower based on age, we didn't know who was going to get a bad outcome, even if they were 40 or 50 or 30, for example. But now we have a different situation. So when it comes to the COVID vaccine, we can be more selective. And with the flu, we don't have a pandemic year. It's the H3N2 Darwin strain, which is actually covered by the vaccine. So it's not something we've never seen before. It's just a harder hit year with more people having lost immunity to the flu. Okay. So age and pre-existing health conditions, are they as significant to player as now as they were a year or two years ago when it comes to considering vaccination? So you're talking about influenza, I presume, to be clear. Well, yeah, either one. Yeah, for influenza. So yeah, for, for influenza, absolutely. And and even for COVID, in, in fact, it is, it is still significant. That, that whole template of COVID, of the older you are, the worse the outcome, that still applies. Of course, now we have people who are immunized, so it's not as bad as it was before. With influenza, what's different is that you have bad outcomes in young children, especially under age two, and then also as people get older and with underlying conditions. So that's where there's a parallel between the influenza and, and uh, COVID-19. But I think an age-based and a risk factor-based strategy is much more prudent for both vaccines now. And I think you might get more buy-in from the public if we stop exporting everybody to get another dose all the time. It becomes, it becomes noise. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.